There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 7th of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Brexit clock ticks down as time runs out for finding a solution to apply the agreed backstop for Northern Ireland. The backstop is an assurance for avoiding a hard border on this island by keeping Northern Ireland in the customs union unless or until a solution to the border is found. Optimism this week of a breakthrough has been shot down because the British seem to be saying they could agree to a backstop if they could pull out of the arrangement by giving three months notice. The Irish government and the rest of Europe insist there can be no expiry date. Taoiseach Leo Radker was heavily criticised in the Dáil yesterday, however, for saying he's open to a review of a backstop. And we'll talk about that now with Mairead McGuinness of Fine Gael MEP. The Taoiseach is in Helsinki meeting uh, with uh, the Finnish Prime Minister about Brexit today and I believe uh, you're there accompanying Mr Vradker, Mairead McGuinness and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Good morning Michael and thank you for inviting me. I hope the line holds up but the Taoiseach is literally in that meeting with the Finnish Prime Minister and the first item on the agenda is Brexit as it will be a big item. Uh, today we're having an EPP uh, meeting at summit where we will announce our spits and candidate tomorrow for a future President of the Commission. But to come to the point of our conversation, which is Brexit and state of play. I think in your introduction, you, you mentioned the backstop, and it's really important to say that the United Kingdom agreed to a backstop. So in other words, the British Prime Minister has agreed since last December that there will be no hard border and that the withdrawal agreement has to give an insurance policy that that will be the case. Um, because what we hope is that it will never be used because we will agree a very strong partnership with the United Kingdom that avoids a hard border on the island of Ireland. But we need a guarantee, and therefore it has to be in the withdrawal agreement. There was a lot of activity at the weekend in the UK press. I'm always Mm. very sceptical of that because there's a lot of spinning going on within the UK uh, to try and, I think, unite a divided nation, perhaps, but also a divided Conservative Party around uh, the, the Prime Minister's objectives. So I think that there is a lot of choreographing going on in the UK. What's very clear on our side, and I will be meeting Michel Barnier here in Helsinki tomorrow, is that we remain open to listening to what the United Kingdom come forward with to agree the backstop, which is in a draft uh, document at the moment, and which they have up to now 
really ignored, even though mm. they've agreed in principle to it. So uh, we're, we're and the review of the backstop, uh, I mean, uh, it seems as though the Irish government is open to a review, and we can talk uh, about why that may be a good thing or a bad thing in a, a moment. Uh, but it, it seems uh, as though uh, this could be the key to breaking this stalemate. Uh, the Attorney General in the UK, Geoffrey Cox, has uh, described this as a, a major step towards a deal. Yeah, there's two aspects which I think we have to discuss. One is this proposal or idea from the British side of a UK-wide backstop, which, um, as I see it and the EU would see, is, is perhaps a possibility, but it doesn't uh, rule out our existing um, backstop, which it talks about Northern Ireland and avoiding the hard border. In addition to that, the proposal or suggestion around a review mechanism for the backstop, but I think it's really important to say on that, and the Taoiseach was absolutely clear that this could, you know, it's a, it's, he's open to listening to this idea, mm. but provided a review of this nature could not involve a unilateral decision to end the backstop. And mm. I think that's absolutely crucial. So in other words, we keep going around in ever, I suppose, extending circles, but come back to the core of this issue, which for Europe is absolutely front and centre. 95% of the withdrawal agreement is done. The Irish question remains. and It has to be solved with the United Kingdom honouring its commitments. And I believe what's happening is that the United Kingdom and the Prime Minister is working to try and muster support for an announcement, which some think will come this week, I'm not so sure, and she needs to do some groundwork around that. So we're going to have to be very calm and collected and remain fixed on our objectives, which have never changed from the very outset and which have always uh, been in line with and supported fully by the European Mm. Union. And I'm sure that in the meeting this morning with the Finnish Prime Minister that Taoiseach will get that level of support again. It's a, an odd thing, uh, but I, I think uh, it is pretty clear what the Taoiseach has said, that there can be no expiry date on it. He's open to reviewing how it's working in practice, uh, but that it will not end unless or until, and that's the expression that is continuously continuously used, unless or until a solution to the border is found. Uh, and uh, that point seemed to be uh, agreed with by Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy on the programme yesterday, that the Taoiseach was saying that uh, there wouldn't be uh, a chance for the UK to unilaterally pull out of this arrangement. Uh, and then, oddly enough, Mary Lou Macdonald accused him in the doll yesterday of a cock-up, plain and simple, saying he shifted his position as a matter of nuance, nuance but substantial, and she believed it was a reckless change. I think she's been very reckless. Um, not surprising, I have to say. She's played, in my view, sometimes bad politics around this Brexit issue. Uh, and I think some of it has been really unhelpful. The teacher could not be clearer about his position uh, on Brexit and particularly around the uh, border question mm. on the island of Ireland. The Cornish stands both. We were absolutely united on this point. Think of a word you use there. You said it's an odd thing. Let's face it, Brexit is a very odd thing. We had a particular odd moment over the weekend where one of the senior Conservative ministers, Rab, announced that he would want a, a three-month backstop. Um, I mean, to, to howls of laughter, but also tears and angst from people listening to a senior Conservative minister making a comment like that. Now, happily, that has been silenced because it, it, it actually was, was a tragic intervention and is almost laughable, except that he made those comments. So I think we have to be very united here. There is, uh, Brexit isn't good for anyone. Um, even if we get a good Brexit, there will be uh, collateral damage mm. uh, to all member states and to the United Kingdom. 
But the only issue is installing a withdrawal agreement, which, remember, needs to be voted through the House of Commons, I think by the end of this year or early next year, and by the European Parliament, is the Irish question. And we are seeing movement but no conclusion. And what I do worry about is, I feel I've been here before. Mm. You know, we've had these conversations where we thought we were moving in a direction, and then the British Prime Minister is confronted with opposition from within her own ranks, and pulled back a little. So, okay, uh, think, but back you know, here, I'm not sure if it's... Of the position. Back here, I'm not sure if it's political point scoring or if I'm hearing it the wrong way, but it was Fianna Falls, Lisa Chambers, who accused the Taoiseach of changing his position on this first of all. As I said, Matt Carthy uh, seemed reluctant to agree with that stance on the programme yesterday, and then Mary Lou MacDonald set out to outdo Lisa Chambers, it would seem, in the all chamber yesterday. But if there is to be no review of all of this, well, I'm not sure if that's good news or bad news, most likely bad news, because it could mean that there'd be no deal. And if there's to be no deal, we're talking about a doomsday scenario of sorts. I was listening to Peter Haynes speaking this morning about what it might mean in terms of companies who trade north and south of the border having to register to define the type of business that they have, that hauliers would have to have health and safety declarations, and of course there would be tariffs. And on top of all of that, Arlene Foster, the leader of the DUP, is saying we're heading towards a no deal? Well, look, there's a lot in your question there. The first thing on the politics of the all, I think it's an unhelpful distraction, but it will not um, in any way distract the Taoiseach and his team and ourselves from the core objective here. Secondly, around uh, preparation for all options. I think Europe and the UK need to be mindful that if we don't agree, then there is that horrible prospect. Um, of a withdrawal of the United Kingdom at the end of March with absolutely no preparation in terms of how do we deal with all of these things that will just collapse overnight. And it will also represent a real failure of um, two very large, if you like, um, uh, countries, the UK and the European Union member state collectively, mm. to, to do good politics. So I think we have to be aware of those issues, and, and the DUP have made their warnings. But at the end of the day, I do believe that the negotiators are charged with finding a solution. I think the British Prime Minister has always been in a a very difficult, if not sometimes impossible position. But she has repeated, even this week in a phone call with the Taoiseach, her commitment to the core principle of there will be no hard border on the island of Ireland. And therefore, she is absolutely therefore wedded to delivering on that, even though she has not found words and ways to do that yet. But there does seem to be, even when I'm uh, Mm. listening to people this morning, a sense in which... Perhaps not this week, but the following week there may be progress, or indeed the week after. What what worries me is then how do we get everything done in time? Because there would have to be a meeting of the heads of state and government mm. of Europe. Well, it's not just the, it's not just the time frame. It's what are you doing uh, and how do you get to uh, a solution? Well, well, it, it would seem though. I think it is. It's the time frame is the most crucial because mm. the withdrawal agreement. The only issue outstanding. Um, is the Irish question yeah. and the political statement about the future, not the details of a future relationship. That would have to come after March. So mm. I think it is doable in terms of the detail, uh, but timelines are important as well. The House of Commons won't rubber stamp. And no no doubt, but, but you could, if you had all the time in the world and you didn't know what the solution was, it wouldn't make any difference. Well, you know. well, one would almost think that because we've mm. had all the time in the world. Because mm. the, the UK referendum is so long ago at this stage. What shocks me is that a great nation the United Kingdom would um, have gone to the polls, had a result, mm. but have had absolutely no plan at 
to how it would be implemented. Absolutely no plan. Well, um, it seems there are a number of possible solutions. One is they don't leave the European Union. They, they forget about Brexit, uh, which probably isn't possible. None of these are particularly possible, uh, but that's one uh, possible solution, if you like. Uh, then there's uh, a United Ireland. Uh, that would solve a lot of the problems. Uh, a backstop for Northern Ireland. That would stop the problems. Uh, and uh, then there's this other solution that has been forwarded by some of the Brexiteers that there would be a British Isles backstop. In other words, the Republic of Ireland would be aligned with the rest of the United Kingdom. And I'm sure, like Matt Carthy, you'd reject that idea as well. Well, you see, everybody has an opinion and we're all entitled to hold them and we all have to listen to everyone's opinion. But the only thing that matters now is the two parties at the negotiating table. And since March, there is the bones of a withdrawal agreement, which the British Prime Minister agreed to in principle the substance and wording she has concerns about. She is therefore required to come forward with something that will work for both sides. So all of these other suggestions, I suppose in the absence of a decisive decision, we have to speculate and have an opinion. Uh, but the only one that um, can work is a backstop, which is the insurance policy, which does two things. It, it gives succor to us who have real concerns, as it does to Europe uh, and the people of Northern Ireland around their future, which at the moment they are, there are concerns about. Nobody, even the DUP, do not want a hard border. Mm. So I think that that's absolutely crucial to give that sense of security. It also should give us real strength to say, in order that we don't use this backstop, which may cause concerns to some parties, let's work very, very well post-March to have a very good and close relationship. That's what we really need in Ireland in terms of east-west trade. So, Look, the speculation mm. is interesting, but it doesn't solve the problem. Okay. We have the core of it already decided, let's move forward. And when you talk about two sides, let's just remind ourselves for one second what you mean by that. One side is the United Kingdom and the other side is Europe. Ireland is one of the 27 countries that make up Europe. Uh, so it's Ireland and 26 countries on one side and the UK on the other side. Now, some would argue that there's a price for the support that Ireland is getting from the other 26 European countries. Uh, And uh, would I be right in thinking that when the Taoiseach uh, speaks with uh, the Prime Minister there in Finland uh, this morning, he'll be saying to him, look, let's stand firm on our opposition to a digital tax because Finland has also uh, been in opposition to such a proposal. Uh, I wouldn't go down that road because I don't know. I know the only thing... Three items are on their agenda, obviously the conference here, but Brexit is the core item on the agenda. I think there's, before I, I direct um, uh, my comments to that point, there has never been a price put on the support we've received, either in whispers or in direct meetings, ever. And I've been around the table since the referendum. I think what the United Kingdom are, are, are facing at the moment is uh, Europe is, is concerned as to whether they can trust the United Kingdom as a negotiating partner. And I think that's very unhelpful for the United Kingdom if they want to leave Europe and then go off and, and deal with others because trust matters in all of these things. Secondly, there is a growing frustration because, you know, in the beginning we were frustrated that the UK were leaving and we wanted them to stay and there was a lot of people angry about that. Now what is happening is people are saying, look, you're leaving, please make it easy. Look, you know, let's reach an agreement. Let's be adults about this so that we can make it happen. And then to your point as to the price to be paid, there is no harsh trading on this issue because the issue of uh, no hard border on the island of Ireland is a European above politics issue because people have a memory, including Michel Barnier and others, of the past. And we all have a memory of the past. We know what the last 20 years have done. We also realise that there is a fragile relationship uh, between the communities which has not been helped because of Brexit. And I think that that's something that I would be troubled by because... It takes a long time for division 
to heal. It takes generations and it takes careful nurturing. And I think Brexit has caused a sense of um, unease uh, between communities that um, had begun to, to find common ground under an umbrella of the European Union. So I don't think this is about currency and the price we will pay. There are big issues that we ha- will have to deal with as a member of the European Union. We will have to fight our corner on some. We have great support on others. Um, but we will be a full member of the European Union. The United Kingdom, unfortunately, will not. And I think it's going to be quite a... I mean, next year will be quite significant. I mean, even for me, working with a lot of UK colleagues, there's over 70 of them in the European Parliament, many of them really good to work with. They will be gone. I mean, that's going to be quite an absence. The ministers will not be around the council table. That's going to be a huge absence. I don't think they've understood how isolated they will be, because if you're not in the room, you can't even have the coffee chat. You're not at the formal discussion. Okay. Your voice is not heard. Well, let's see what happens uh, and uh, which voices win out over the coming days. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, as always. Mairead McGuinness is uh, Fine Gael, member of uh, the European Parliament, vice president of uh, the European Parliament, and was speaking to us from Helsinki in Finland this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, with uh, the dire housing and homelessness situation in the country, isn't it a blessing that nobody ever has to sleep on the streets in RD or Drogheda or in Dundalk or anywhere in County Louth, for that matter, at least? Uh, that's uh, according to the official statistics. Uh, the rough sleeper count takes place every November and every year it finds nobody sleeping on the streets, but I think people will tell you otherwise. Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne has been querying how the council sets about making this count and uh, what plans they have for this year so that they will find the people who are actually on the streets. She's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, what have the council said to you? Um, good morning, Michael. Uh, how are you? Yeah, look, um, I suppose the last two years, um, the rough sleeper count in Loud found a, a count of zero, a count of nil, right across the county. That was Dundalk, Midloud, and indeed Drogheda. Now, Drogheda in particular, um, on both years at the time, um, I think everybody in the town knew for them that count to be inaccurate. Now, I bumped out the merits of Loud County Council's exercise on the night, and I'm sure they did look to the best of their knowledge but my point and specifically after last year's second count of nil and my time on the council was that there needs to be more prior interaction with the NGOs on the ground we've we've great people in Drogheda Homeless Aid there's the relatively new group the Drogheda Cares for the Homeless there's the Red Door there's Women's Aid there's a multitude of people who work with these people on a daily basis and I feel personally that if there was a little bit more liaison with them in advance of this count, it could be much more productive. It could return an accurate reflection of the level of homelessness coming into the winter season. And that allows the local the local authority to understand the magnitude of what they're facing and, I suppose, put provisions in place to provide effective and safe accommodation for these people who are on our streets, mm. no matter how much. Um, wh- why is it you think that they're not being found when they go out to do the count? Well, there's, there's a couple of contributing factors. I suppose the local authority can't go on to private property for a start. So if there is people squatting or, or sleeping in derelict buildings or things like that, that, that is private property, the local authority cannot go on to that. So so my suggestion there was bring on, on Garda Shiakana with you. Mm. They can enter private property. And and it's things like that. People aren't... There's, there's, 
different levels of rough sleeping. There's people who's lying in doorways, but there's people who's lying in shelter, out of the rain, out of the severe conditions that they're facing to try and keep themselves warm as well. And and these are the hot spots mm. that, that need to be investigated more. And, and these are the areas that, that groups like the Draught of Cares for the Homeless will tell you this is where these people are. Now, Draught of Cares for the Homeless in particular was born two and a half years ago out of frustration for this problem that was occurring in Drogheda. Um, last night in particular, they had 35 people at, at their stall on West Street that they were feeding. Six of these guys were rough sleepers, four of them long-term sleepers, and two relatively new over the last couple of weeks. So these are the people that we need to to get the information of. We need to get this information to the local authority, and we need to we need to all work together to ensure that these people aren't lying on our, on our streets over the winter. We've seen another homeless man in Dublin Passed mm. away yesterday, found dead yesterday morning. That's the 27th person in, in less than a year and a half. What do you know about and the situation of the other 29 people uh, that you spoke about? In, in Drogheda last night, uh, six of them uh, are sleeping on the streets. What about the other 29? Uh, some of them are with Women's Aid and, mm. and some of them are with the Homeless Aid. And they are mm. engaging with the service, but they're going along for extra support. They're going mm. along for extra feeding and toiletries and things like that. And these guys are doing phenomenal work. But um, it was the figure of six mm. that was said to me that that was alarming and frightening. Now, I mm. didn't know that on Monday night when I raised this query. My query was just of before the account happened. Happen yeah, well, it's probably of no sometime. surprise. I think a lot of people would know the six people that they'd be able to point them out to you on the street uh, and uh, probably where they are sleeping for that matter or they'd have a, a fair idea. And it is quite a, a large number relative to the population of the town. I mean, if you take the likes of Dublin, you might be talking about 150 people, 100 people or 50 people at any given time who are sleeping on the streets. And you look at the size of their population. Mm. Yes, that's like what we, we, we do mm. have um, the September homeless figures for allowed um, the, the local authority figures was there was 120 people in this county presented as homeless, 49 of them in Drogheda, mm. and, and then people who did present do go through the services. There's advice offered, fast tracking for rent supplement, emergency accommodation, tenancy statement. There's a multitude of different things depending on the circumstances, but the rough sleepers are the ones that the, if the local authority don't know about them. They can't factor them into the mm. equation and they cannot make provisions for them. And, and that's just my point. Uh, and as you say, public representatives, no doubt, but the NGOs most certainly do know Absolutely. where they are and yeah. they're willing to assist uh, the council. I think you had a, a fairly positive response from the council, did you? I did indeed. Um, yeah. Paddy Donnelly, who's the, the newly appointed Director of Services for Housing, he agreed with my concerns. He said they were warranted and he, he said that he, he would ensure in advance of this year's count that all of these NGOs that I mentioned and others would be contacted. And he, he actually said that County like, Council want to be in a position to be able to give these people the help that they need. So I will, I personally will stay in touch with, with, with um, the Housing Department of Lake County Council in advance of this. And I've, I've contacted some of the homeless support groups since that and, and, and okay. you know, engage with them in, in advance of the account coming up okay. and ensure that they work with the local authority. But they always do anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of them were contacted last year. Um, I believe the homeless aid was contacted, but I think it was an hour beforehand. They only had one person on call at half one in the morning an hour before this count was to take place. And there wasn't somebody free to actually go out 
from um, mm. the homeless aid itself to show people around the street. So it's a little bit of communication. Okay. If, if, if there was advance warning, there would be people there to assist the local authority. And then we've got a true reflection. All right, Joanna, I think that count will be expected in the next week or thereabouts. Uh, and yeah. uh, perhaps uh, you'll come back and talk to us uh, after the figures. Well, indeed. Thank you indeed for joining yeah. us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Joanna Byrne. Now let's stay in the Drogheda area and indeed take a look at what's on the front page of the Drogheda Independent because it being Wednesday morning. The local newspapers are in your shops and Marie Kearns is here with the front page stories and as I say, let's start in Drogheda. Yes, it's a good news story on the front of the Drogheda Independent today. Martin's thanks to heart donor is the lead story in the paper and the Martin in question is heart transplant survivor Martin Burke who says that he still thinks about the young man who gave him a second chance at life exactly 30 years this month. Now 77, Martin was given little hope when he when he developed a heart problem in 1988 but within nine months a donor heart became available and he has gone on to live a full and rewarding life. He tells Hubert Murphy I thank the man that gave it to me. He was in his early 20s and I would have loved to have met his family but it didn't happen. It's a lovely read Michael and it tells how Martin went on to run in the European Heart and Lung Championships competing all over the continent because heart transplants then would have been a rarity in comparison to nowadays you know. Mm, absolutely. All right. Well, nice to hear that uh, and uh, uh, long uh, and uh, healthy living to you, Martin, as well. Let's stay in uh, Drogheda and uh, some of uh, the vacant buildings uh, yes, that people are yes. very aware of. Another good mm. news story, but of a different mm. sort. And this is focusing on the Riverside Quarter in Drogheda, which, according to the Drogheda leader, is set for a massive jobs boost with two of the former corn mills on Merchant Quays ready to reopen in early 2019. The enormous McCann and Hills mills, which are located between Constitution Hill and Drogheda Port, have been idle for years and this will now give a whole new lease of life to the Keys. Des Grant is reporting that this week the well-known Dublin-based International Language School, ELI, announced that they are moving into one of the mills in January while the Chocolate Factory Arts and Enterprise Hub is letting out the other mill and it's now 50% let. So that's good news too, Michael. Oh, it certainly is. All right. Uh, Is there any news at all in Dundalk? Oh, Michael, there's Mm. only one story they're talking oh, yeah. about. What's Champions! <laughs> You'd have to be living on another planet if you don't know that the Dundalk won the double uh, this week and of course the three papers are saturated with coverage, brilliant pictures, memories, the lot. Well worth keeping to have for future years to look back on. So it's the inside stories I'm looking at really this week and in Dundalk Democrat, well worth uh, looking at an interesting feature on a new plan thought up by Martin McElligott manager of Dundalk Bids office to breathe new life into forgotten parts of Dundalk via an urban artwork initiative. So that's in the Dundalk Democrat. Mm-hmm. The leader, of course, uh, yes. the same story on the front page. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. But they're also um, reporting on another sporting success, this time boxer Amy Broadhurst, Michael, who has been selected for the upcoming Female Elite World Championships in India. The 21-year-old is to travel to New Delhi to take part in the second biggest competition after the Olympics where she will compete in the 64 kilogram 
um, weight division. A fantastic achievement for Amy, who's made no secret of the fact that her dream is to box in the Olympics. And after seeing the Katie Taylor documentary over the weekend, Michael, I'm all for the boxing and all for the women. It's a very exciting time for okay. female boxing. You don't have to tell us what's on the front page of the Argus. <laughs> the Argus, yes, it's the same. The double success for Dundalk. But inside, Michael, Halloween, it's usually a fun time, but not for the residents of Carlingford, according to this week's Argus. Margaret Roddy is reporting that Halloween turned into a fright night for locals as a gang of youths rioted in the scenic village, throwing rockets at houses, businesses and cars. It's awful the story tells how terrified residents were afraid to venture out onto the streets, with one woman describing it as the worst night of my life, adding that it was three and a half hours of hell. The village was in lockdown as people couldn't leave their houses. The terrifying ordeal began around 7.45pm as a large gang of youths, some believed to be as young as 11 or 12, and it's believed there was about up to 40 of them, Michael, roamed through the village throwing rocks and it actually resulted in Gardaí in riot gear having to come to the village to try and sort it out. So that really sounds like absolute mayhem. And there's reports of a window of a car being smashed, attempts made to set other vehicles on fires with unexploded rockets clearly visible under number of cars and remains of fires could be seen on the road. So that's all in the Argus this week, Michael. Horrific, okay. st- horrific time for residents, it seems. It's uh, the hospital in Navan yes. that makes for the front page yes. of The Chronicle. We've been covering this ourselves and The Chronicle are also reporting about concerns for the future of the hospital's accident and emergency service, which the paper is saying looks set for a, ma- looks set for a major downgrade following comments by former HSE boss Tony O'Brien that it would have to be that he would have had it closed and fears for the future of the services were then compounded by the Ireland East Hospital Group statement pointing out that Navin was the only one of nine hospitals earmarked for reduction in services where it hasn't yet been carried out. It sparked fears that the HSE will move to reduce A&E cover in Navin to a 12-hour service only. According to the story, the worrying developments have galvanised the Save Navin Hospital campaign, who's now urging the public, Michael, to attend its annual meeting in the New Grange Hotel on Thursday night at 8pm. And I just have to mention the other story on the front page of the Chronicle, Michael, which features a poignant picture of beautiful bride, 34-year-old Kim Allen from Kells, who sadly lost her short battle with an aggressive form of pancreatic cancer last week, just five months after being diagnosed. Okay, there's a lot there if people want to comment on those stories. You'll be back with some of the comments uh, that come to us in a few minutes' time. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. For the last 10 or 15 years, hospitals have closed down for 7 out of 12 days, or effectively closed down for 7 out of 12 days, and that's something that needs to change. This is according to the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, who's suggesting that Christmas holidays have led to surges in people on trolleys in emergency departments, and as a result, uh, we're failing the sick and the elderly in this country. He's saying that the staff in the hospitals, that's the nurses, the doctors and the backup staff, all should cancel their holidays this Christmas and look after the sick and the dying for that matter. Paul Bell is SIP2 Health Division Organiser and he's with us uh, this morning. A very good morning to you. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, are you going to uh, make people sicker by taking holidays? Well, I have to say, I think um, on Taoiseach is 
obviously run out of excuses to why we face such a crisis every January. And uh, if he's laying that blame at the door of people who work in the health service throughout the year, I'm afraid that has to be challenged yeah. for what it is. I'm not sure he knows what happens in hospitals, well, which is I, a little well, bit surprising given that he's well, a doctor because must, it's not that the yeah, emergency departments yeah. have less staff in them over yeah. the Christmas period, is it? Well, it's absolutely not. And that's what we want to touch on here because mm. he's identified two groups uh, of workers, which is very disappointing, uh, radiographers and those who perform uh, laboratory testing. Yeah. And basically they should be fully operational. Well, I have to inform the teacher this morning that they are fully operational. Mm. They are fully operational 365 mm. days a year. Yeah. There's a, a lot of things stop in hospitals yeah. over there, the Christmas period. Elective no, procedures, planned yeah. operations, uh, outpatient clinics, yes. these things, they stop so that people can spend some time with their holidays. But that's planned. That's planned. See, so Because what, what's the impression being given here is that certain key workers, be like doctors, healthcare assistants, nurses, uh, radiographers, Mm. Uh, laboratory technicians that all these people somewhere mm. along the line disappear. Uh, that is not correct and I would challenge on Taoiseach for that. I'd say uh, there were an awful lot of nurses uh, amazed yesterday, nurses who yeah. are, are telling oh, I have to work Christmas Day uh, but I had it off last year or yeah. I, I got Christmas Day off but I have to yeah. work the Ross, New Year's the, Eve the Rosses or whatever. The way the yeah. yeah. are under yeah. control mm. of the local mm. management. Mm. Uh, they uh, operate those Rosses on the basis that of the needs of the hospital, of the needs of the patient. Now, if you look at what uh, I'm not quite clear what Antishok is, is uh, really proposing, except to try and distract the public from what the real problems are. Mm. Like Slauncher Care have identified, you really need 2,600 additional beds. Also, by the way, there are no other services in, in many cases for patients who need to attend a hospital uh, to attend. In other words, most patients who feel they need attention will go to the emergency department. Uh, and I've been in an emergency department on a number of Christmas days uh, in my other work mm. uh, and I could see that people come in and are treated there's other uh, like there's other units available minor injury units medical assessment units I think that sometimes the public don't even know they're available yeah. but the, the, what the Taoiseach has to clarify here very clearly is uh, are you proposing to run the full suite of services through the Christmas period and if you are mm. then set that out and has the, he got the money to do it uh, I mean because well, quite often money, you'll hear of orthopaedic surgery being cancelled yeah. in October because the annual budget has run out and that's planned procedures well Antisha goes I understand was challenged yesterday uh, by the leader of the opposition about uh, money like some 50 million euros that was meant to be spent mm. for a Christmas period and what was that spent on and you're quite correct there's a certain amount of monies that are available for services and obviously they're, they're managed in a certain way and if the money is spent it's spent but the Taoiseach needs to very, make it very clear. Is he saying that on Christmas Eve and the day after St. Stephen's Day, the hospitals run back into elective surgery, day case procedures? Is he saying that? And if he's saying that, mm. well, then obviously that's the service that he wants to provide. But remember something, uh, Michael, there's a number of real complications here. Many of the health workers we have, even our Lady Lords Hospital here, on in Navin or up in, in Dundalk, uh, many of those health workers have leave already pro- approved because they are foreign workers. Mm. They, may be, they may have been a leave approved for two or three weeks leading up where they have to travel back to, uh, to their home country for that period. That has been approved, already approved. And it's approved on the basis that uh, normally, uh, through a period of annual leave, uh, the hospital will try and decant 
obviously, yeah. to try and obviously if, if patients are fit enough to go home, they can go home. Those who need to stay, need to stay. Those who need care, like for emergency department or maternity care or cardiac arrest yeah. or stroke, they will be obviously taken care of as a normal yeah. day. Well, you would. might be waiting, if you're listening to us this morning, you might be waiting on an operation, but uh, yeah. you won't be brought in on the 24th of December for your operation, most likely on the 3rd of January. Well, this is the question that needs yeah. to be posed to on Taoiseach, because it's, what he's trying to do is basically escape his responsibilities yeah. to provide a resourced health service. But maybe the point he's making is that the reason that the hospitals are so overcrowded and there's so many people on trolleys is the staff's fault. Well, I think that's what he is saying. And that is absolutely astounding uh, for the leader of our country to say that, Mm. to give inference to that. Because instead of of staying on the job, doing your job uh, and looking after the sick, you're going off on holidays. Well, that's that's what has been put out there and it's going to be very heavily challenged by this union and I'm sure by others. At the end of the day, the, 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 if annual leave is not taken through a, a Christmas period, it still has to be taken. And some of the statements made by Antishok uh, are absolutely ill-informed, for want of a better term. Uh, they're not accurate. But he has a duty now. They're not ill informed. I mean, he's he's a GP first of all. Yes, he's an experienced politician. He's a a former minister for health, uh, who who should know everything about the health service. And he's the Taoiseach. Well, he didn't spend much time in the Ministry of Health, Michael. In fact, I I would have said in previous uh, engagements on this program. In fact, what. uh, Antisha had done when he was in the Ministry for Health he spent all his time figuring out how to get back out of it and I make no apology for that uh, we all know that resources are limited but we also know that to act irresponsibly by nearly basically touching on the understanding that the staff are responsible for people on trolleys is just it's the most bizarre commentary that you could hear from the Taoiseach. Now, I believe he, the Taoiseach is going to have to come clean over the next few days and declare what type of service he wants over that Christmas period. And indeed, obviously, does he have the funding to provide those services? But I do believe this conversation is going to roll on. And by the way, Michael, just mm-hmm. to make this quite clear to, to the listeners, if, if these are the services that are provided, your members will attend work. But that leave will still have to be taken sometime. Okay, we'll leave it on that note. Thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Paul Bell, SIP2 Health Division Organiser. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back with us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning, Marie. Good morning again, Michael. Seamus from Dundalk was in touch about the Brexit backstop. How much talking do they need to do about this, Michael? The way I see it, the backstop was agreed. It is a last resort if no other agreement is in place. It needs to be kept in place. Full stop. Never mind backstop, full right. stop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Say Seamus from Dundalk. Okay, well, that's all well and good, except not everybody agrees. Margaret was in touch, listening to the report of what happened in Carlingford at Halloween. It's a disgrace to hear that some of those involved may have been as young as 11. That's very worrying, says Margaret. Where are these children's parents when they are out doing this? Why are they allowed out at night without supervision? Hmm. That's the question. Well, I suppose suppose, uh, at that age, children across the country are allowed out without supervision on Halloween night. Trick or treating. Mm. Although a lot of parents follow them around. You see them like at the Mm, end of the street at 11. At that age, I'm not sure they're trick or treating. 
Claire was in touch in relation to your interview there with Paul Bell regarding mm. health workers and Christmas and holidays. And Claire says that Leo Vradker must think that hospital workers have nothing else to do, only work. What are they supposed to tell their families? Uh, many have children who are off over Christmas and they keep time to take off. Um, to say that they can't have annual leave at this time is an absolute joke, says Claire. All right. Uh, Grania from Drada says, is the Taoiseach going to take no holidays over Christmas himself? He has some cheek, she says. I think he's a <laughs> few worked up at this stage. and <laughs> he, uh, They don't roll over, apparently, for the Taoiseach, so he needs to take them before the end of the year, by uh, all accounts. Another listener says, everyone's entitled to a holiday. Annual leave has to be taken as your guest rightly points out. So if it's not taken then, it has to be taken another time. Maybe Michael Leo will return to his old job as a doctor and give a dig out. You'd never know. Let's uh, talk about something completely different though and uh, a terrible incident last night. A, a woman died after being knocked down by a bin lorry in Dundalk. Sinn Féin councillor Rory O'Murku was at uh, the scene of uh, this accident. He's on the line. Uh, this uh, a terrible accident by all accounts, Rory. No, no, obviously a terrible accident and an utter tragedy for a family. Um, and beyond that, I suppose there's, I don't want to put a trite term on it, but uh, there's no winners here, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously it was a collision with a bin lorry and it was a guy going about his work. And obviously the Gardaí were there, I spoke to them, you know, their investigators will do whatever they need to do. And I suppose if there are any lessons to be learned as regards health and safety, that will all come later. But it's just another tragedy. It has absolutely, you know, shocked mm-hmm. people around and surrounding. And yeah. And we hear people talking about Christmas. Uh, we're a little uh, over a month out from Christmas, uh, and uh, I think sometimes uh, the timing of these tragedies uh, can make them all the more poignant. Uh, this happened at the junction of Mourne Vale and Maple Close. Uh, what do we know about the woman, or do we know much about this uh, particular well, lady who's now deceased? Was she local? Yes, I, I've I've heard a name, but uh, I don't think it's been officially released. And uh, when I spoke to the guards even last night, they said they were trying to ensure that they informed all the extended family, like the head got some of the close family. So I, I, I think it would be better to leave that other than, you know, the information that's out there that she's, you know, an elderly woman in her 70s and from the locality. And a, a terrible shock, no doubt, to the family. Uh, as you understand it, the immediate family have been informed at this stage. Well, they have had, but you're, mm. it has to be. It's it's brutal. It's mm. here, it's absolutely unexpected. An accident here yeah. late in the evening, a horrible, rotten, dark evening. You know what I mean? And, and this is visited upon you, as you say, in the run up to Christmas. Yeah, there's there's no other words but tragic. And that's it. In this type of weather as well, it can be all the more dangerous. I take it she was close to home. Yes. Yes. Mm. Um, like, like I, I believe she lives in a very close locality. Actually, when I heard it first, and I heard of it more in Vale, and I, you know, the initial, I was at a meeting, and her word came through, obviously, of of an accident, and I had a missed call even from one of the newspapers. So you, you know, you struggle to see what was actually going on, and then you said Mournville, is that right? So. Yeah, no, no, absolutely unfortunate. Yeah, upsetting for everybody, upsetting for uh-huh. you, I'm sure, uh, having been there and uh, in proximity uh, of uh, the people directly impacted. Uh. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The lady herself, obviously, who has lost her, her life, uh, the impact that will have on her family, friends and neighbours, uh, the emergency services who attended the scene and indeed a, a terrible, terrible thing for the driver to have to live with now. No, that's what I mean. There mm. are absolutely no winners. That was a guy going about his work and, mm. and whatever may have happened, he uh, he didn't set out to do this. Yeah, yeah? And you're, it's like he's got to live with this yeah no no it's very difficult for you're all all concerned mm. yeah no as I say I have no other words other than this is oh, absolutely absolutely yeah. unfortunate yeah. and yeah. tragic yeah and uh, our sympathies to all oh, involved obviously not sympathies and condolences particularly to the family and friends okay. of this lady all right and uh, if nothing else people listening to us uh, this morning uh, may Heed it as a, a word of warning and to think about uh, their movements, particularly on these uh, dark, wet, wintry nights. Thank no, you. you. You said it, dark, wintry nights, and yeah, people have been taking, talking about it in, in the last while. You need to be absolutely careful. And obviously there may be lessons to be learned at some stage, but yeah, people need to be very, very careful in these types mm-hmm. of circumstances. All right, listen, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning on that. Uh, Sinn Féin councillor in Louth, Rory O'Murku. Now let's go back uh, to some more of your calls. Uh, what else have you got for us there, Marie? Lots of comments, Michael, in relation to Navin Hospital following your discussion yesterday with the, the local councillors, Darren O'Rourke and Wayne Ford. Theresa phoned in uh, while that was going on and she was saying, I'm just listening to the discussion about Navin Hospital. How dare anyone talk about closing some of it down? It saved my life on two occasions. The care you get in the hospital, Michael, is second to none. I cannot understand it. We have three ministers in Mead. It's time they got up off their butts, says Teresa, and do something about this. We need to make sure that the hospital is kept fully. The care you get, she said, she can't reiterate it enough, is fantastic. When you were in there, you really appreciate it. And she says, I owe my life 
to Navan Hospital. Well, it's not the first time that it's been suggested that the emergency department would be closed down. In fact, it's uh, the official position uh, that it's unsafe and that it should be closed down and replaced with uh, minor injuries unit. And uh, that goes back uh, to the small hospital network report. The problem that the HSE has in implementing that and closing down the emergency department is that there isn't anywhere else for the patients to go. So they have to continue with this situation and that's what Tony O'Brien, the outgoing Director General of the HSE, was saying that it's unsafe. If he had his way, he'd close it. Uh, yes. And imagine if the HSE had its way, it would close it because they feel it's unsafe uh, and they prefer you to go somewhere that's safe, uh, but there is nowhere to go. Another Navin listener says the hospital and the A&E in Navin are the best in the country. It just cannot be closed. Members of my family have used it in the last year and the service was excellent. Um, and she is insistent that something needs to be done to prevent this happening. Another listener says Finnegan made a promise that there would be a state of the art hospital. And this hasn't happened, Michael. County Mead is being treated as the backyard of Ireland. And don't forget, we have tower mines to think about in case of an accident. Well done to Wayne and his father before him for trying and working to keep this hospital open. And the last word I'm going mm-hmm. to have, Michael, is that I have been waiting three years to be seen in Drogheda. Okay. Didn't go into any of the details. Charlie from Navin says he was prompted to phone in during that discussion, Michael, oh. when the word experts was mentioned oh, right. okay. in this decision mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because he said, Michael, we've seen experts in mm-hmm. operation in this country and the subsequent fallout. There's been experts on structural buildings and then faults in them. Experts who have commended and recommended guard commissioners and then we saw what happened. Loads of experts. But it's been well proven in this country. Sometimes when you have experts, it doesn't always work out as you think. And he says, Navin should of course, of course, be kept open. It's a mining town for a start, and there are numerous people working in the town. He says there needs to be facilities there. Delighted, Michael, that Drogheda has a decrease in relation to the trolleys, and this is good news. Okay. But in relation to Navin, it has to stay. All right. We had another call in uh, from Maureen in County Loud and she says that she is sick and tired hearing people complaining about Our Lady of Lords Hospital. Uh, She says that no matter when you hear people talk about the hospital on the radio or reports in the newspapers, it always seems to be people complaining. Nobody talking about the good work that is Mm. that is done in Our Lady of Lords Hospital. And this prompted her to ring up yesterday. She says, I would not be alive today Mm. only for Our Lady of Lords Mm. Hospital. It's always negative and I'm fed up listening to it. I've been treated like royalty in the hospital, Michael, and I'm just an ordinary person. It's not as if I have money or anything like that. I'm just ordinary and I got very good treatment. Mm. Well, I I hope you're wrong, Maureen. I hope it's not the case that there's only ever negative talk about the hospital. I'd uh, echo everything you've said. I've been a patient. Unfortunately, I have to say, uh, because I didn't like being a patient, I didn't like being sick, but I have been a patient uh, and uh, quite a, a long-term patient in Our Lady of Lourdes and uh, was treated uh, as well as anybody could hope for uh, and then some for that matter. Michael, we were speaking yesterday about smoking and lung cancer and Pat and Carrick McCross phoned in regarding smoking and he says that just wanted to make the point uh, that any person who smoked in the 70s did not know 
how smoking dangerous was to your health. The government at that time did not make people aware of this, that the profits were just taken from cigarettes and there was no real publicity about it. So it is changed times. A lot of people in those Mm. days didn't really realise the significance or the danger they were putting themselves in. Mm. And he just wanted to make that point. Okay. So we'll finish on that. All right, thanks uh, for that, Pat. Thanks, Bree. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a lot of talk, as you've been hearing about how Tony O'Brien, the outgoing chief of the HSE, would close the emergency department in Navin if he could. And how there's nothing new in that, that the HSE would close the emergency department in Navin if it could, and that that is uh, the position the authority has taken for years on end now. The problem is uh, that they can't find anywhere else to send the patients who would go there otherwise. Patrick Tobin is an independent TD and the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Yeah, this is true. For, um, for a long number of years, since the, ba- the, the days of James Riley, myself and yourself have been discussing the fact that it is government policy to close the A&E in Navin. And uh, we have had government ministers say that's nonsense and say that's never going to happen. Uh, but it, it clearly has. And, you know, it really brought it home uh, over the weekend uh, with Tony O'Brien's mm. very clear statement uh, that Navin A&E is in their target. And he actually stated that he was disappointed that he didn't get a chance uh, to close it. Mm. Um, and that and it's unsafe. Well, he, he said it's unsafe. Now, first of all, I would say that um, it's not good for staff morale, first of mm. all, for a, a former HSE CEO to be talking like this. It's mm. also not good for patient confidence. He, may ha- he might have a choice with regards to what A&E he goes to, but most people in me don't have a choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, after, suggest- after reading what he had to say, I was suggesting on the programme yesterday that people, if uh, they were driving a, a patient to emergency, they'd go on to Drogheda or Blanchardstown rather than go to a hospital that's unsafe in Avon. Well, first, is it, it has always been in Tony O'Brien, the HSC and the government's gift, that if they felt that the hospital wasn't safe to put the necessary investment into it to solve the medical problems that are there, Tony O'Brien has failed to solve the medical manpower problems all over the country. And, um, and, and that's what we've been pushing for all the time. It is the HSC's uh, tried and tested uh, activities to cut back and to reduce investment in certain hospitals. But nothing has changed. say they're unsafe mm. in an effort to mm. actually see them close down. And that's the mm. wrong thing to do. But, but nothing has changed. Uh, it's been the view of the HSE since uh, the publication of uh, the Small Hospital Network report that the emergency in Navin is unsafe. Tony O'Brien but, simply articulated the stated position. The already well, first of all, position. You, you mentioned driving on to Blanchetown or Drogheda there. Mm. Uh, we have 500 people on trolleys today. The health service in the whole state, I would say, is not operating in, in a safe manner. But we not have, in Drogheda. Drogheda, Drogheda has uh, seen a turnaround. Drogheda has seen is, a turnaround because it has, actually, and, and in fairness, it mm. has had a new A&E open yes. uh, during the week on that. And we're glad to see that. But that's what it should be. Well, Drogheda, it's had a turnaround like if, if, over the course of the last year or two. But if, if we were to redirect over 20,000 patients who attend A&E in Navin to Drogheda, you would soon find 
draw it in a jock again and mm. reaching capacity and that's why it hasn't happened and that's as you say we've been discussing this over many years uh, it's agreed that the hospital in Navan is unsafe but it is agreed at the same time that there's nowhere else to send people so it has to stay open so what we need to do at this stage is not just leave it open in this particular situation we need to solve the medical manpower problems that are mm. in Navan now Na- NACE for example is full of locums mm. uh, and the reason we have locums in this state is because Tony O'Brien, the HSE, haven't solved the issue of getting junior doctors in a permanent basis into these hospitals. And that would make a radical difference with regards overnight. And another issue with regards overnight, sickness doesn't watch a clock. You know, people get really ill uh, overnight. And also, many people who are registered to be admitting during the day are actually still there overnight. So the fact that they don't show up on the records as late night ad- ad- admissions doesn't necessarily mean they're not being treated but uh, at night. But why not follow hospital. the example that has worked in Louth, where you have a uh, minor injuries unit in Dundalk and a hospital that carries out other procedures and outpatient appointments and that sort of thing. Uh, and then in Drogheda, you have a hospital that has experienced full-time doctors with the necessary equipment uh, to look after you to the best possible degree, rather than sending people to Our Ladies in Navan, where you have part-time, inexperienced doctors working with uh, equipment that uh, doesn't serve the job? Well, first of all, I want to say that Navan is a good hospital, and many people have had good experiences in Navan, and many people are alive today because Navan Hospital is in existence. Uh, for years, people have said that Drogheda has, uh, was a centre of excellence, and most people would have known that the word excellence was not uh, appropriate to Drogheda. Now, Drogheda has improved, and I'm, I'm delighted that that's happened. But the way to stuff Drogheda now is to actually reduce capacity in Navan. Everybody is telling you and me at the moment that bed capacity is mm. a serious need within uh, the service. Closing Navan would actually reduce bed capacity and reduce the quality of service in Louth and Meath and in, 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 in the whole northeast. But it so can become a simple, different type of centre of excellence uh, and that's uh, the point uh, and that's what they're doing in Dundalk for example. They're building 800 houses in Navan at the moment. The population of Meath is about 200,000. It will soon be a quarter of a million uh, people. The idea of closing an A&E in a, a, one of the fastest growing population centres in the country does not make sense mm. whatsoever. And we have a Save Navan Hospital campaign meeting, an AGM, which is happening tomorrow night, Thursday night, uh, at 8pm in the Newgrange. And I would dearly ask people who have been so you know, uh, loyal to the hospital campaign to come along uh, tomorrow night to have this discussion. Because one thing is clear from uh, Tony O'Brien's statement is that he would have proceeded to close the hospital only for the level of opposition that existed in the county. And the opposition has been given well, by the Save Navan Hospital it, campaign. It's predominantly because of the lack of capacity elsewhere. And I don't think there's going to be any rush to close the emergency in Navan because there's nowhere else to send people. Well, but if you find somewhere to send them, perhaps the right thing to do is to close it and to bring in additional services to Navan. And this has happened elsewhere. And I think it's probably quite possible and maybe a little bit ironic because you're on your way into a meeting of the Health Committee now to talk about the 180 proposed amendments to the abortion legislation. But isn't it quite possible that hospitals like Navan and the Louth County and Dundalk will become centres of excellence for terminating pregnancies? 
abortion well, clinics. First of all, and you know, I've just been speaking to a obstetrician uh, overnight, and that obstetrician has told me that actually that uh, Peter Boylan is going around the country currently talking to local hospitals to see whether they get involved uh, in the termination uh, of pregnancies in abortions. And from what I'm hearing is that hospitals are actually refusing to participate. And I think this is going to be a big story uh, during the day because I, I, I intend to bring this information to the committee that many hospitals, Letterkenny Hospital, Cavan Hospital, other hospitals, you know, doctors, obst- obstetricians, staff, nurses, etc have come together and many of them have said that you know this has uh, been pushed in their direction mm. without any consultation whatsoever there's no opportunity for proper uh, as uh, freedom of conscience saying, yeah. or, or mm. conscientious but they, they, they may they may not have uh, the ability to resist this uh, uh, it may be their responsibility to carry out the services well, as directed thing- and isn't it likely that Navin and Dundalk would be ideally cited and given the status of the two hospitals to become abortion clinics well, First of all, I, I don't want to uh, put Navin or, or Drada or Louth into the mix on, this, on that particular issue at the moment because the staff in those hospitals should have a very, very big role in, t- uh, in the same. But it's not way off the mark. Is it? The suggestion is not off the mark. Is it? Well, well, well I, I would say that, you know, for me and you to suggest that without consulting with the staff there would be wrong. And the second thing is that um, it is really important as well that you know, there's about 650 doctors that said they have had no consultation with the government on this and who have said that they are refusing to participate in the service. And it struck me this morning, and I come in to work, and I said, you know what, the abortion services provided by Simon Harris will be as big a mess as the health services provided by Simon Harris. It sounds to me as though your answer to the question, which is, will Navin and Dundalk become abortion clinics, is that if that is the intention, it'll be resisted. Well, it, no, all I'm saying is consult first. I said, like, asking a person, you know, if I was to ask you that your office or any of your listeners mm. that their office would become an abortion clinic or that they would be involved in arranging abortions, most people would say, you know, talk to us. But you're obviously you worried know. that that is the case. I'm not worried at all. You're the first person that mentioned to me. But I you said that you were going to bring the issue into the health committee this morning. No, I, what I said was I'm, I have heard overnight from an obstetrician that hospitals like Cavan mm. and Letterkenny and, and other hospitals Navin have Dundalk. on this. No, no, I haven't heard of those discussions is what I'm saying to you. I have heard of actual discussions in those other hospitals saying that they're not happy to proceed with this uh, particular step. The key issue here, and I, and I hope it's not lost, and I know mm. the abortion issue is very topical and very important, but having a functional A&E in, in Meath to serve the 200,000 people that live in Meath is of my primary uh, concern as chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. And what I'm hoping to do is to make sure that the resistance that we provided in the last eight years, which has successfully maintained the hospital, along with problems in Drogheda, is continued. And I've heard as well recently that Simon Harris has said that uh, to the HSC that they can close the A&E in Navin in, in six months' time if they get the, the will of the local medical profession behind them. And I've also understand that medical professionals in me that are being talked to around the closure of the hospital, etc. The key solution to this is invest in resources mm. and in, in staff and healthcare professionals in Mead, make the hospital better and safer for everybody and, and make sure that we don't uh, reduce capacity and stuff Drogheda again. But you also accept that when you remove an emergency department from a hospital, it's par for the course to replace it with a minor injuries unit and other services, maybe geriatric services, diagnostic services, rehab or respite services and possibly abortion services. Well, 
that's that's not a matter for me. It's a matter for for the um, the government. I'm obviously saying that you know I personally wouldn't be in favour of it, but I I will also say that there's no doubt that the very first thing you should do is talk to the staff in the local hospitals to see <clears throat> will they uh, you know will will they proceed in that manner. I would guess that many of them won't, uh, and it, as has been seen elsewhere. But this you're right. This is a serious question. When you introduce a bill like this. And Simon Harris uh, does it without any consultation with the health service and just rams it through. It creates these types of questions. And, um, you know, and, and that's why I said, you know, mm-hmm. I have no doubt that the, the, uh, the, 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 the situation that Simon has created in the health service is going to be replicated within the, the abortion service as well. Uh, as you say, uh, you know the time frame for the meeting of the Save Navin Hospital Group. That'll happen tomorrow evening. What about the time frame for introducing the abortion legislation? Is it ever going to have happen given the amount of uh, proposed uh, amendments? Well, just, I want to just say one thing about this because there's been a, a wrong impression given by some of the media on this in recent times. There's 180 amendments, first of all. 16 of them are pro-life amendments, and the rest are pro-choice amendments. Now, all of the political parties have uh, members in, the, in that chamber who have pro-choice amendments, who are seeking to radically change the bill that was uh, used as the basis of, uh, of the referendum. All of those people are saying that we have to implement the bill, but at the same time, all of those parties are seeking to radically change that bill. So, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it. Indeed, you know, all of the parties introduced an amendment yesterday which would, in practical terms, legalise abortion up until birth uh, in this country. And that's incredible. That's a rat that, that you couldn't deviate or uh, distance yourself from the original bill that was the, the topic of the referendum as much. Some of the, the, the uh, amendments that I seek to bring in are simply ones that would allow for pain relief for the unborn child after 20 weeks gestation because it's, it's scientifically proven that there is a reaction amongst unborn children to pain at that age. I'm also looking, there's, there's, there's a case, in, there's about 60 cases in Britain every year where unborn children actually survive an abortion but are seriously injured and are allowed just to die uh, uh, outside of the mother's womb. Now, these are infants. These are not fetuses. Uh, so what I'm asking for is if there are medical professionals around in those cases in Ireland, that they would intervene and save and protect and offer comfort to that uh, infant who's injured uh, as a result. I'm also looking to see that doctors have freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience is an internationally accepted norm. And, it's, it, you know, the, the, the referendum was dressed up in choice. And now we're looking to take choice off doctors, nurses, and okay. pharmacists and medical professionals, and that's not good enough. Independent TD for Mead West, Peter Tobin, the chair of uh, the Save and Navin Hospital campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, legislation to establish a digital safety commissioner was uh, discussed at uh, the Joint Committee on Communications yesterday. It heard from members of uh, the Department of Communications, Facebook, Google, CyberSafe Ireland and the ISPCC. We're joined by Fiona Jennings, who's policy coordinator with the ISPCC. And what's envisaged here is a way of policing the internet somehow. Something uh, that the Facebook representative in Ireland said, uh, Facebook doesn't want to pay for itself. Morning, Michael. Morning to you. Yes, we were at the committee yesterday. We were delighted to have been there and uh, in relation to um, the Digital Safety Commissioner Bill. And as you said, what's envisaged in the bill is that there will be a system of monitoring and takedown in relation to harmful communications. 
And just to put that into context, uh, as you did yesterday, or at least as uh, your chief executive did yesterday, uh, it could uh, be the example uh, that John Church gave of a 15-year-old girl uh, who sent photographs of herself, nude photographs of herself, to her boyfriend when he was her boyfriend. Yeah, so these are these are typical cases that we would hear from our childline service and our frontline service, where young people are, I suppose, experimenting with their sexuality and are creating um, intimate images and they're sharing them and with people, I suppose, that they feel they trust with, they trust at the time. But then when things go wrong, those images then can be forwarded on and it's out of their control. Um, And these can be very, very tricky situations for the young people involved. Um, So it can cause a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry. Um, we would always encourage, you know, the young people to, to go to the person, I suppose, who has the image asked them to delete it and also then as well to the service provider to try to get the content removed also. But well, once somebody course, hits the send button, it's too late to a large extent. And that seems to be or have been the problem with uh, this young girl, 15 years of age. She sends these photographs to her boyfriend. Uh, for whatever the reason may be, but he sends them on to his friends. The next thing, everybody in the school has them. She's worried about who else is going to see them. As far as she's concerned, everybody in her world has had sight of them, bar her parents, and what if they get sight of them? Uh, And then she starts feeling suicidal. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I suppose if you think about it, you know, she's a 15-year-old girl, she's very young, and, you you know, teenagers, by their very nature, being teenagers, sometimes they can do things in the spur of the moment and, you know, they may not imagine what could potentially happen after that. Um, so I suppose there's a couple of things to be learned from that particular case example. First of all is the importance of education, online safety education for children and young people, um, that they become aware of when they're creating images, any kind of images really, it doesn't have to be intimate images. Mm-hmm. And when they go on to share those images, the, you know, that, that those images are potentially out of their control, then, you know, that they can be shared further. Um, but also, I suppose, and in light of yesterday's um, committee meeting, it's what young people can do when those images are gone. So we're calling for and supporting what's envisaged in the legislation, which would be some type of regulation. So at the moment, you know, children and young people, they're often the first people to discover new platforms, new apps, they engage with them, you know, enthusiastically, you know, when they're released into the marketplace. But not all these um, platforms or apps have, I suppose, considered child protection features, in particular reporting mechanisms. So often when something goes wrong, they have nowhere to go to. Mm. And then some of the platforms that are available that have reporting mechanisms in place Sometimes they can be ineffective and inefficient in how they actually deal with it. So how a digital safety commissioner will make a difference is when the young person has gone to the platform and they haven't got the response that they that they should have gotten, they can then appeal to a digital safety commissioner who can then link directly with the platform and request the content to be removed. Or order the content to be removed order the content to be removed, yeah. correct, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. And I suppose we're still at the very early stages of this. Mm. Um, there's a lot of things that, that, that do need to be looked at, in particular, you know, how do we actually define what harmful communications actually is. 
Um, and that was something that was brought up by everybody yesterday, you know, ourselves and our, and our colleagues um, and, and the, the, the tech companies as well. You know, we need to have a robust definition of what actually constitutes a harmful communication. Mm. Uh, and uh, freedom of, of speech and uh, free to communicate in whatever way you feel uh, appropriate. Obviously, one of the arguments that is made against putting in a, a system of censorship or regulation, depending on whether you view the two to be two different things. Uh, and uh, Facebook uh, saying yesterday, as I said at the outset, that they didn't believe they should have to fund the setting up of a uh, uh, police force, basically, because we talked about a commissioner, but it would be an office of uh, the Digital Safety Commissioner. Yeah, I suppose that's what we're looking at at the moment. And I suppose our role in the ISTCC is to highlight when there is a gap and where a need is, and that for us is some type of regulation of industry. I suppose the funding and the resourcing of that, you know, that, that's up to government for them to decide. Yeah. But I suppose it's not uncommon for industry to contribute to, you know, the regulation of their own sector. Um, but, um, you mean, there are logistical issues as well. And I think we are a little bit away from that. And I suppose you could also argue uh, that uh, the people who are at risk, predominantly children in this circumstance uh, that we're talking about uh, this morning, wouldn't be at risk if uh, these forums weren't available to them or weren't available to them in the format that they're currently in. Well, I mean, you know, we're not saying that you're going to, you know, prevent cyberbullying from happening or or anything like that. Mm. I mean, I think that would be incredibly naive for anybody to believe that. But what we do firmly believe is that, you know, if there was a remedy available, a remedy that was effective and Mm. efficient, then it would certainly go to some way to, I suppose, you know, sort some of the situations out better. What happens elsewhere? Well, in Australia, which is the model that, um, that, that, that we're kind of currently looking to mm. and that we, that we suggested the committee look to as well, is they have an e-safety commissioner established um, in legislation. So she has discretionary powers. So she works then with the companies then have to, I suppose, assign a dedicated person. So should an issue, should an issue be brought to the e-safety commissioner um, in relation to a particular platform, then she has a direct link to that particular platform and she could almost expedite a situation. Mm. But also as well, which works with the Australian model, is sometimes with cyberbullying in particular, you know, it's very different, you know, is that sometimes the issues can be incredibly nuanced. You know, you a, a platform might be looking at harmful communication in isolation, whereas the e-safety commissioner is able to bring the context and to bring the fuller picture you know, that's not just one post to the platform and is able to resolve cases that way as well. Okay. Well, undoubtedly, uh, the committee will report in due course, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Fiona Jennings, Policy Coordinator with uh, the ISPCC. Now, let's go to the murder investigation into what is believed to have been the death of Ghidra Ragushkaiti uh, in Laytown, it seems, although she had been living in Dundalk uh, at the time that she was last seen, which is around the 29th of May. Stephen Breen joined joins us now. Uh, he's uh, the uh, crime editor of The Irish Sun. Good morning to you, Stephen. Thanks uh, for your time, as always. You're welcome. Uh, 
this is an odd situation, isn't it? In that the Gardaí have said uh, that they're investigating a, a murder, uh, which is unusual when there isn't a body, isn't it? Yeah, it really is a shocking case. And the, the investigation started just in August when uh, Gierdre was reported missing by a friend um, in the Dundalk area. Now, the, it was initially being treated as a missing persons case, but just last week the Gardaí upgraded it to uh, a murder investigation. They conducted a search of a property in Nighttown yesterday, uh, which is related to the, the ongoing investigation. So they, there has been no sightings of her um, since May, no contact with her family, no social media interaction with anyone, and uh, even Gardy had been in contact with uh, their colleagues in Lithuania to see if she'd been accessing any uh, funds that she had in a bank account over there. there has, there's, there's been none of that as well. So, And uh, just last week they upgraded it to murder because they have concerns for her safety and are, are satisfied that, you know, she's, she's been uh, killed. Right. Uh, there's uh, two men uh, who've denied any knowledge uh, of her death uh, that uh, Gardy have been speaking to. What else do we know about this investigation? Yeah, but Gardy confirmed that, that uh, she, they, they, they are satisfied that she was seen in an unconscious state with these two individuals. Uh, the two individuals have been interviewed uh, by Gardy. Uh, we understand that they have denied any knowledge of uh, what happened to her. They, they don't know anything about her, but they, they, they obviously Gardy are following over 170 lines of inquiry. You know, they were initially uh, concerned maybe she was the victim of a human trafficking gang, but one major theory that they are following is that um, perhaps you know she she was uh, um, she could have been drugged, um, she she could have been uh, attacked, and that the killers uh, panicked and then subsequently uh, dumped her remains in a shallow grave. And Gardy have been able to refine any sign of her, any sign of, of a body anywhere. And her family are also saying that they're satisfied that she has been murdered. So um, they're just appealing for anyone with information, you know, who, who, know, uh, who knows what happened to her, just to come forward and, and pick up the phone. And she doesn't have any family in Ireland, does she? No, she has two sisters. There are one in Cyprus and, and one in Italy, her father. Um, is also in Lithuania as well. And Gardaí and, and Dundalk are wor- working closely with Interpol uh, and Lithuanian authorities as well. So they're, they're, they're just uh, trying to piece together the, the jigsaw here and trying to establish what happened here and where she is. But it, it is now being treated as a murder investigation. So they're, they're trying to find out where she is and also to get, to get justice for her family. And uh, Because these people are still out there, whoever did this, and wants to stop them mm. doing something again. So it, it is a mystery and you know, Gardaí are doing everything to try and solve it. Beautiful woman, 29 years of age. Uh, what do we know uh, about her? What was she doing here? Is there a network of friends or other people that Gardy are speaking to? Yeah, she's had her, her whole life in front of her. Um, she she um, she had been living in uh, Dundalk, and that, that was. But she moved out of that property uh, at the May twenty third uh, of this year, and um, she'd been in Ireland uh, for a year. She'd spent some time in England uh, as well. Her two sisters are, are also living outside Lithuania too. So she has been here for some time. She was well known. Um, she was well respected in the Lithuanian community. Uh, had a lot of friends here. She was doing uh, different types of jobs. Uh, for from time to time, uh, but uh, unfortunately, there's been no sightings at all uh, since May. No contact with her family, and and Guardian would be hopeful that the answer to this 
a terrible crime lies within uh, her own community. Okay, that's uh, one of uh, what appears uh, to be two murder investigations of young women in County Louth, uh, uh, given uh, that uh, she may have been murdered in Laytown, but living in Dundalk, uh, and that's uh, 29-year-old Gidra. There's uh, 28-year-old Saoirse Smith, uh, who was last seen in Belfast, uh, but was living in Omeath, and uh, PSNI officers believe she may have been murdered and in Omeath at the time of her death. Yes, this is another missing persons case as well. Uh, Saoirse Smith, originally from Belfast, but did have connections to Newry and also to Dundalk and Omeath, and she was last seen in Belfast in April uh, 2017, uh, but just uh, in July of this year. And the PSNI, who, who are leading this investigation, but also working closely with their colleagues in, in Dundalk, um, issued a fresh appeal for information. And they also searched a property that they think that Searsha may have stayed in before she, she was last seen. Um, they are also satisfied now that that uh, investigation has been upgraded from um, a missing persons case to now a, a murder investigation. And, and just yesterday, they reissued an appeal for, for information and uh, the, the PSNI chief inspector there, Jeff Boyce, said that they are satisfied that she was murdered. She's had no contact with her family. And they're once again appealing to people on both sides of the border with any information who may have seen Saoirse, who may have known her, her movements or who she was associating with uh, to come forward. Um, as part of that investigation, a man and a woman have been questioned. They were later released without charge. But the PSNI are also hoping to speak to um, an inmate in, in Dublin here in, in Mountjoy Prison. But to, to do that, they, they have to get permission from the, the prisoner himself the, because it's a different jurisdiction uh, to speak to them. But he hasn't done that yet. So they're, they're working closely with the Gardaí to try and ascertain what happened and hopefully to get um, some, type of, uh, some type of correspondence with this uh, prisoner. Very sinister stuff altogether. Listen, Stephen, thank you for joining us this morning. Stephen Breen is uh, the crime editor of The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. Women are twice as likely to be affected by depression and anxiety as men are. Ireland has the highest rate for child suicide of girls in Europe and in some parts of Dublin women are taking their own lives in the same numbers as men are. This is the first time this has been seen and this information is from the National Women's Council of Ireland which together with St. Patrick's Mental Health Services have developed a women's mental health network. Now to coincide with that they've launched a report called Out of Silence, Women's Mental Health in Their Own Words. Kleena Lochnan is the National Women's Council's Women's Health Coordinator and the co-author of this report. Good morning to you Kleena and thanks for joining us and when you say in their own words, you're talking about the words of 100 women from across the country who you've been speaking to. What have they had to say to Exactly. So we spoke with a, a, a diverse range of women. So women living in rural Ireland, in you know, in urban centres, older women, younger women, women from the traveller community, migrant women. So really tried to capture as much as we can a sense of how women are dealing with their well-being and um, what they do in times of difficulty and where they get support. And I suppose key messages that came out from the women we spoke to was about the intersecting demands that they have they feel as women that they have and how that impacts on looking after themselves. So they talked to us, you know, about the pressures from society, about having to look good. Um, They talked about the level of kind of work responsibilities that they often now have in the workplace as well. And that was then very closely connected to all the caring responsibilities and all the caring work that women do. And then also they spoke about, you know, that 
within their families, they often felt that they were the key support when other people were having mental health difficulties. So they were having to provide support to their family, which is something they wanted to do. But obviously that then impacted on how they could look after themselves. And then other women also spoke to us about the impact of life events. So things that happen to you as a woman um, or may happen in, more likely to happen mm. to you as a woman, for example, domestic violence and how that um, women talked about, you know, being chipped away at, having their being gaslighted, feeling controlled. And like one woman, for example, when she spoke about her experience of violence and she was saying, you know, I got away from him 20 mm. years ago, but still, and what she said is still, I see or hear something and it can bring me right back to the fear. Or childbirth, I, I gather, would be a particularly female reason for depression. Yeah, so I mean, we know from other research um, in Ireland that, you know, 16% of women who are engaging with maternity services in Ireland um, are experiencing some perinatal mental health um, difficulties. Um, And, you know, we have a very high birth rate in Ireland. So that's a lot of women who are going to our maternity services who are looking for support. Um, And one of the things, you know, that came from women, they really identified Mm. pregnancy as a time, you know, that can be difficult. Obviously, it can be a happy time, but, you know, it's a big life change. And one of the things that women said was, you know, Sometimes you feel like that you should be really happy at this time and that you can't really talk to anybody about how hard you might be finding it or any struggles you're having. And that's, I suppose, linked to this idea that there is stigma for women when they talk about their mental health. And that stigma is often because, you know, they have mothering responsibilities and caring responsibilities and they don't want anyone to judge them around those um, when they seek support. And women did tell us that often, you know, they would be cagey about who they would tell or or how they would approach services for those reasons because they were afraid of being judged. And when they do, uh, how do the services respond? Is there more of a, a focus on treating the problem than solving the problem. Uh, One of uh, the quotes uh, in your press release uh, uh, sort of suggests that somebody has been told to keep on taking the tablets rather than being asked what's the problem. Yeah, so like that was one woman who was speaking about the experience of her mother and that, you know, her mother on a number of occasions was engaging with the health service and I suppose the focus was on providing her with medication, which, you know, wasn't necessarily all that she required or that she wanted. So, yeah, a lot of women talk to us about, you know, um, maybe going to primary care and again being offered medication, but there being real difficulties around accessing the kind of talking therapy that many women said they would like to see. Um, but there was also, you know, there obviously are positive experiences that women have as well. And, you know, women, we talk in our report about women who say that sometimes they feel invisible about their mental health um, and well-being and that, you know, they've no one to, to speak to about it. But some women did tell us about meeting with a certain health professional and that health professional saying, you know, I hear hear you I hear that you have a need here and we're going to um we're going to get you help around it and that you know women really kind of tied into those feelings and that was very kind of revelatory for them when that happened but at the same time you know the report does show that there are real barriers for women accessing services and the women themselves made uh, recommendations around the kind of things they think could change in terms of access and I have to say that access to more counselling, free counselling for women at community level, that was certainly something that came across very strongly. OK, we have to leave it there because we've run out of time, Kleena. Listen, thank you for joining us, though, this morning uh, and uh, for taking the time to be with us. Kleena Lochnan is uh, the National Women Council of Ireland's Women's Health Coordinator and co-author of uh, that report, Out of Silence, Women's Mental Health in Their Own Words. That brings us to the end of today's programme. Our time has run out. A podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing and Ross Leahy for researching. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.